0: What an absolutely fun time of year. What a great time of year. Are you guys excited for the fact that Christmas is only two days away? Wow, that was sad. Christmas is only two days away. Yeah, that is exactly how I feel. And I just want you to know, kids, everybody in here, I hope with everything inside of me that you get all the gifts that you want. I hope that you get gifts that blow your socks off, okay? I do. I do. I also hope that you get at least one pair of socks (laughs) and one pair of underwear And at least one ugly sweater from your great Aunt Ruth. With everything inside of me, I hope you do. Because, my friends, my friends, any gift is a good gift. Right? Yeah, that's exactly how I feel. Any gift is a good gift. And we don't deserve any of them. And so I hope... With everything inside of me, I think it is one of the most important things that we need to learn is how to receive a gift that maybe we don't absolutely love, because that keeps us from getting feeling like we're entitled to all the right gifts. And so I hope you get at least one or two gifts that are maybe not all that you wanted, but in that moment you say, that was so kind of you to get me this gift. And I hope you learn that. That's my hope for you for this Christmas If you would grab your Bibles this morning, because we are going to continue on, kids, with a series we've been doing leading up to Christmas, that that what we've been doing is we've been reading in the Old Testament all of the different times when um, the town of Bethlehem shows up, the little town of Bethlehem. You know, that's where Jesus was born, of course, but there were so many other things that happened in Bethlehem before Jesus was born there. And so what we've been doing as, as part of this series leading up to Christmas is we have been just reading those different stories. So we started, I guess three weeks ago, reading the story of, of uh, Jacob and Rachel, when Rachel dies just outside Bethlehem, just a little ways to go, some distance yet to go, and she's buried along the side of the road, so she is on the way to Bethlehem is what it says, and that's where we got... The name of this series, On the Way. So it's the lead up in what God is doing in preparation for Jesus coming. And so it's been a good series. We started with Jacob and Rachel. Then a couple weeks ago we, we covered uh, a Boaz and Ruth in the beginning of David's line. And so even a thousand years before Jesus was born, you see the beginnings of what God is doing. And, and the seeds of what God is planting that will grow into Jesus Christ being born. And then last week we talked about uh, uh, David being anointed as king uh, by Samuel also happened in Bethlehem. And so today is the last of the stories of something that happens in Bethlehem in the Old Testament. And friends, kids, I'm telling you right now, I saved the best for last. It has action. It has adventure. And it has Absolutely no kissing. So, this is a great story for you guys to be here for, and um, we're excited about it. So if you grab your Bibles, and I want you to see if you can beat your parents there. It will be in 2 Samuel chapter 23 today. Second Samuel chapter 23. Parents, if you grab one of the church Bibles really quick, it'll be on page 276. So you can beat your kids there today. Okay, grab those Bibles, open them up to Second Samuel chapter 23. This is a fun chapter. Um, Let me tell you what's going on in 2 Samuel chapter 23. So at the end of David's life, there is kind of like the final accounting of his life. And just before this, it actually has David's last words. And guess what it is? It's a psalm. And I love that because that's so perfect that David's last words were a song. It's so fitting for who King David was. Anyways, and so after the psalm, then in 2 Samuel chapter 23, you find this accounting of the people who came around David. The people who really helped make David the king who David became. And there are some pretty incredible people in this chapter. In fact, um, they're named or called David's mighty men. You see, before David even became king... When he was still running from Saul um, for his life, he was hiding out in a cave. It was called the Cave of Adullam, which is a cave that is just outside the town of Adullam. Yes, very creative. And so he was hanging out in this cave, and people started gathering to him. And it just says that they came from all over the nation. And not even just all over the nation, they came from nations around Israel. And people who just, before you know it, he had an army of, like a small army of 400 people at this cave of Adullam. And then, as that was the birth of it, some of them were, you know, bums. And some of them were really incredible bums. And some of those incredible bums became the mighty men. What a great name. And these guys, it says that there were 37 of them at the end of this chapter, and these guys were the guys who were the most impressive of all of the people who gathered around David, and they stood beside him and they fought with him. And some of them are not even just considered the mighty men, there's some that are called the three, which I love that they don't need anything more than the three. They don't have to be the three musketeers, they don't have to be the three tenors, or the three amigos, they're just the three, and everybody knows, oh, the three. One of them's name was Abishai. Oh, Abishai was cool. Abishai, I don't know if you know this about David, but he fought more than one giant. He fought Goliath and won. If you don't know that, um, you can read it. But he fought a Goliath and won. But he fought another giant. His name was Ishi Benab. It doesn't roll off the tongue like Goliath. That's why he didn't get a chapter. Anyway, so David fought against another giant named Banab, and this is something that's not talked about, but he was losing the battle. In fact, he was about to die. He would have lost to Ishibanab. But at the last minute, Abishai swoops in and defeats Ishibanab, saves David's life. So he's one of the three. Another one's name is Eleazar. Eleazar, um, <laughs> I, I like Eleazar, Eleazar and David at one point were facing off against the enemy along with all of the Israelites behind them. And as they're facing off against the enemy, David and Eleazar decide to start taunting them. We aren't told how they taunted them. We won't get into it. But I'm sure it was totally church appropriate. Anyway, so they were taunting the enemy. Bad idea. The enemy decides to charge them. When the enemy charges, all the Israelites take off. Except for David and Eleazar. They're the only two guys left, and all these guys are charging them, and it says that Eleazar kept fighting along with David all day long, all morning, all afternoon. It said at the end, his hand was frozen to his sword. It actually says in the the original language, it says, his hand became one with the sword. Which is a fancy way of saying that he got a cramp in his hand. And he couldn't, like, he had to pry the fingers off. He was working so hard. But it sounds cool. His hand was one with the sword. But he stood beside David when everyone else ran. And then the last one's name was Shema. Shema, same kind of a situation. I guess the Israelites ran a lot early on, because Shema, same situation, except David wasn't even there. He's there with the Israelites, and the Philistines are coming at them. He's standing in the middle of a lentil field, okay? All the rest of the Israelites run away, and he stands his ground and fights against them. This is how he made his name, which really speaks to us kids on the value of fiber in your diet, okay? Lentils are high in protein, high in fiber, Very important that you get good fiber so you can be like Shema. Anyway, so these were the three. And these guys are awesome. Right? And so you read the story. And in this chapter, intermixed with all of these people are these little stories of things they did. And so you find stories of a guy who fights a lion in a pit on a snowy day and gets books written about him. That's the kind of people who gathered around David. And then there were the three. And right in the middle of this is a story that happens in Bethlehem. And that's the story I want to read, 2 Samuel chapter 23. We'll start reading in verse 13. Here's what it says. And three of the 30 men, 30 chief men, went down and came about harvest time to David at the the cave of Adullam. When the band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephaim. So, part of what I love about the Bible is that a lot of times when I'm reading it, there might be something that I read that I don't fully understand right away. And so I have to stop and I have to think about it. And a lot of times when you come to a place like that, a really good idea is to look at other places in the Bible and see what it says. Because you read this and it just sounds like, okay, what? There's a big mush, the Philistines are coming to this valley called Rephaim, and on the other side of it, David's at this cave in Adullam. How do, what happened? How did this happen? When did it happen? What's really nice about the Bible is a lot of times somewhere else in the Bible it'll tell you. And you can find out exactly what, what, when this is, it's in 2 Samuel chapter 5. So if you turn like 10 pages to the left, if not, it'll be up on the screens, and we're only going to be there for a second, so you don't have to if you don't want to. 2 Samuel chapter 5 verse 17, here's what it says. When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David. But David heard of it, and he went down to the stronghold. Now the Philistines had come and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. So there's a couple things this tells us. Number one, this is where the Philistines spread out in the valley of Rephaim. Okay. The other thing it tells us, is that David leaves where he was and heads to the stronghold, which is the cave at Adullam. It's known as the stronghold. So he leaves where he was, heads to the cave of Adullam. Third thing it tells us is that this is right after David is anointed king over Israel. David was anointed king three times. One which we read last time was when Samuel did it in Bethlehem. The second time was when he went to Judah and became king of Judah. So there's a split after Saul's death. He's killed by the Philistines. So the Philistines, the same people that this is about, kill Saul. When they do, the nation splits. And a bunch of the tribes follow one of Saul's kids named Ishbosheth, And one tribe, Judah, follows David. And they anoint him king over Judah. He is king over Judah for seven and a half years. That entire time he stays in a place called Hebron. But at the same time, Ishbosheth is with the rest of the tribes. That whole time seems to be a time of peace for them. The reason why? Because why would the Philistines mess with a good thing? Right? If the nation is divided, why would they get in the middle of it? As long as Judah and Israel are kind of against each other, and there's not major battles, but there's minor skirmishes, and the house of David is against the house of Saul, just leave them to their own devices. They aren't going to bother you, and it'll just kind of mess them up, right? So you leave them to it. Seven and a half years, that's the way it ends up. Ishbosheth dies, then the rest of the tribes anoint David as king. This is his third anointing, and that's when this happens. See, now all the Philistines have a problem. Now the nation is no longer divided, it's united. And so immediately it says, as soon as they hear that he's been anointed king over the whole nation, they gather up and they go to the valley of Rephaim. At the same time, David then leaves where he was and he heads back to the cave of Adullam, which seems to be an indication to all of the people who had previously gathered to David, hey, come on back, we're about to fight a battle. So he goes to the cave of Adullam to start gathering up his forces in preparation for going back and kicking out the Philistines. So this is the setting. Back to 2 Samuel chapter 23, verse 13. And three of the 30 chief men went down and came. So they're, they're gathering, right? And this is the three. About harvest time to David at the cave of Adullam. When a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephaim, David was then in the stronghold, and the garrison of the Philistines was then at Bethlehem. Now, wait a second. Why would the garrison, the headquarters, the place where the generals are, why in the world would they set that up in Bethlehem? The most strategically insignificant little town you could pick. Unless they are sending a message. Bethlehem is David's hometown. So, David, anointed king, woohoo! He can't even protect his own hometown from the Philistines. They are baiting him. Come out and fight us, David. Come out and run us out, David. If you can't, you're not much of a king, are you? So they set up their headquarters right in Bethlehem. Now, kids, this is important. If you learn this lesson early on, this will serve you well for the rest of your life. Where there is bait, there is normally a trap. Okay? Kids, if you see a nice little piece of wood on the floor with a nice big chunk of cheese on it, do not walk over and eat the cheese. It will hurt a lot. When you read this story, as soon as you hear that there's a garrison of Philistines in Bethlehem, which is only significant to the Lord, nobody else, when you hear that, The first thing that should pop in your brain is Admiral Akbar. Here's a trap, right? Like that's exactly where your mind should go. That's what's going on here. They are baiting David to get him to come out and fight. But David is in the cave of Adullam gathering up his forces and people are gathering to him. The same ones who gathered to him before he was even king are coming back and they are coming to fight. Three of them are the three. And maybe they're the ones who told David that the Philistines are in Bethlehem. We don't know. But somehow David finds out. And these three have gathered to him. Here's what it says. And David said longingly, Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. I have always thought, correct me if I'm wrong, I have always thought that if you are going to name a town, Springfield, Springfield should have good tasting water. Right? If you're going to name your city after water in the middle of a field, when you drink water from that city, you should go away feeling refreshed. Now, if you're driving through Arkansas, I love Arkansas and the people of Arkansas, for those who were offended the last time that I said something bad about Arkansas. If you are driving through Arkansas and you get to feeling a little thirsty and you see that the next town coming up is Toad Suck, Arkansas, which is the name of a town. I'm not making that up. If you see the next town coming up is Toad Suck, Arkansas, you probably won't think, That's a great place for me to get some water. But if you see Springfield, you would think, ah, I'm going to get me a refreshing drink of water. And then you drink it, and it tastes like we buy our water from Toad Suck, Arkansas. That's what it tastes like, right? But my house, we're on a well, and the water that comes out of that well, it is crisp and refreshing and oh, so good. David is sitting here in this stronghold in the middle of the desert. And I have to say, he probably has water there. It would be a really terrible stronghold in the middle of the desert if it doesn't have a water supply. But while he's sitting there in that stronghold in the middle of the desert, he goes, Oh, for a drink of water from that well just inside the gate in Bethlehem. I read this and I think, That is super passive-aggressive. I don't know if any of you ever had a grandma who was passive-aggressive. I did. And she would always do stuff like this. Oh, I wish that someone would get me a glass of water. And I would say, Grandma, just ask me to get you a glass of water, and I'll get you a glass of water. You don't have to do the whole passive-aggressive thing. But that's not what David's doing here. I think what David's doing here is he is remembering simpler times for me what it's like is back home in Kenosha when i was growing up there was this little store called D&L it stood for Don and Larry's father and a son Don and Larry's and it was right at the corner of Green Bay Road and Highway 50 and we, when we were kids, would walk down from our house to this little store, d and Couldn't do it anymore because Green Bay Road has turned into a major highway. Highway 50 is is a massive major highway, and it's the busiest intersection in Kenosha. On one corner, D&L is long gone. There's a Walgreens, on the other there's a gas station, on the other there's a bank, and the other one has a mall, so it's super busy. So imagine Battlefield and Glenstone and, and, and little eight-year-olds <laughs> down to d and because that's what it was. And yet I remember heading down when it was just Green Bay Road was really just a road, and going to DNL and buying myself a glass-bottled coke where there's moisture kind of peeling off of the outside of it, and I could get that glass-bottled Coke for five cents. Now, that's not true. How old do you think I am? Come on? But I could get it for 50 cents. And what was really cool is, after you bought the glass bottled Coke, you could bring it back afterwards and get seven cents back. And they did have penny candy there. And legitimately, I remember the penny candy, and we would bring the bottles back and we'd buy ourselves some penny candy. It was really just incredible. And I've noticed that ever since then, I've never had a Coke that good. And it may be because they were literally using Coke then. I don't know. Uh, But if not, I don't even drink soda that much anymore, if at all. And and yet I remember those Coca-Colas so fondly because it was good and it was refreshing. And quite honestly, it was a much simpler time. Things were much easier for me then. Didn't have as many responsibilities, as much work. I could just walk down to DNLs and get myself a Coke, and that was my day. You know what I'm saying? And I think that's what David's doing here. I don't think he's, I mean, even just based on his response after what happens, he wasn't expecting it. It's not, it's more of a, a nostalgic moment of, oh, I remember those days. When I would come in off the field after watching sheep all day. That's all I had to do was just watch sheep. And on the way in, I would pass through the gate and I would stop at that well. Oh, that water. So good. Oh, for a drink from that well. That would be nice. And he says it. And apparently the three hear it. And Al-Bishai looks over at Eleazar, who looks over at Shaman. One of them smiles at the other two. Without saying a word, they head out the door. Very next verse. I love it because it's so plain and simple and it doesn't go into all of the details. But Then the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines. And drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate, and carried and brought it to David. Now here, I think it's very important that you see a map. I like maps, and so I'm going to show you a map today. Kids, this is a map. (laughs) Let me show you where Bethlehem is. Bethlehem's right there. Okay, that valley of Rephaim that they were talking about, that's right here. Right here, Jerusalem. And down over here is the cave of Adullam. The distance from the cave of Adullam to Bethlehem is about 13 miles one way. If they made it twice, that's another 13 miles. If you add that up, that's 26 miles. And for the sake of our story, let's add .2, which makes that, my friends... A marathon. (laughs) Now, marathon is fun enough. Imagine it carrying armor and swords and all the additional weight that goes along with it. And perhaps they walked the front half. I guarantee you they did not walk the way back. And in the middle, they stop for a battle. And when I say a battle, think about it for just a moment with me. Imagining Bethlehem, where do you think is the most heavily defended spot in the city? I'd imagine it's the gate. And if it's not the gate, I'd imagine number two would be the well, (laughs) the water supply. Put the two together, and I would imagine this is a heavily defended spot. This is where the generals are, so I would imagine they don't leave the bums out front. And most likely, it's a trap. And these three head off to Bethlehem. It doesn't give us details on how it went down or how long it took. What we do know is somehow they fight their way through. And we don't know if three of them all fought at the same time and then beat back the enemy enough to grab the water and run out the gate. Or if two of them fought while one of them grabbed the water and headed out. But somehow they do it. I would imagine it took until at least the Philistines stopped chasing them for their hearts to slow back down and you wonder why would these guys do this It's because he's the anointed king of Israel they came to him long before he held that title they gathered to him when he was nothing but a bum in the hole in the ground in the desert and they gathered about him boy, this is some honor. This is some loyalty. This is some sacrifice. This is some devotion. And they show this to David. And I kind of picture them as they're arriving back, or at least as they're getting close, that Abishai looks to the others and says, "My, my gift I bring, a gift fit for the king, a gift To honor him, pa-rum-pum-pum-pum. These are men's men. I doubt they ever said pa-rum-pum-pum-pum. Wondering what kind of response they'll get. They walk in. They bring this water to David. And here is what David does with it. But he would not drink it. He poured it out to the Lord. Oh, I wish I could have been there in that moment. The water's poured out into the ground, and at first there's a puddle. Within seconds, it's just a different colored spot on the ground, and within a minute, even that's gone, sucked into the thirsty ground. Read this, and at first I kind of picture Abishai going, Pa rumpum. I'ma kill you. You know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> it says David takes it and he pours it out on the ground, and here's what he says Far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of the men who went at the risk of their lives? Therefore, he would not drink it. These things the three mighty men did. First thing I want to point out there is that last line. These things the three mighty men. This is just the kind of thing they did. (laughs) I love that. This is just the stuff that they did. But the words that David says here are really incredibly profound. Because you begin to get a glimpse into the type of person that David is. And why people would gather about him. Because he's the king, right? Anointed king. King of nothing, but he's the king. And even as he's the king and they bring this gift to him, he recognizes something. He recognizes that, wait a second, the question is not, is this a gift fit for the king? He recognizes that the question is, Am I a king fit for this gift? Am I worthy of this kind of honor, sacrifice? And he realizes, no, no, I am not. That's the kind of man I could follow. kind of man, because some people wouldn't do that. Some people bring you water from Bethlehem, And they'll ask you, where's the ice? But not David. David says, far be it from me, oh Lord. The same honor and devotion and loyalty and sacrifice that they show to him, he shows back to them. Can I just say? That as the pastor of praise assembly, there is a weight on my shoulders. Because the Lord has entrusted us at praise with some incredible staff. And as the pastor of praise, there is a weight on my shoulder of how do I honor, show loyalty to, make sacrifice for this staff. And as the pastor of Praise Assembly, as I look out at the congregation that the Lord, for whatever reason, has entrusted to me, I think, how do I honor the sacrifice and the loyalty and the devotion of these people? That is a heavy weight. So I understand what David says here. And I get it, and that's the kind of person that I would want to follow. Oh, It's not about whether or not this is a gift fit for the king. The question is whether or not I'm a king fit for this gift. And he says, no, I am not worthy, and there is only one king who is worthy. And so he takes that water, and he pours it out before the Lord as the second recorded drink offering before the Lord. The first is back in Genesis chapter 35, by the way, where we started this whole series when Jacob and Rachel are just outside Bethlehem. Right before that, it says that Jacob pours out a drink offering, if you remember. He says, even if God, whatever might come, O God, whatever it is, I will serve you. He pours out a drink offering, and here we have the second. You want to know where the third is? Oh, that's over in Philippians. Philippians chapter 4, verse 6. There, this is Paul. And Paul is at the end of his life, not Philippians, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6. At the end of his life, and he's talking to Timothy about those things that he has done and seen and served and how he ministered before the Lord and giving an accounting of his own life similar to the accounting of David's. And he says there, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Hence more there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Have you loved his appearing? Have you loved his coming? And are you looking forward to, with expectation, his second coming? Do you love his coming? He says those who do... He will be faithful to you. He has laid up a crown of righteousness for them. And he will award them on that day. That's normally where we stop reading. Because after this comes some personal instructions. It says here, do your best to come to me soon. For Damas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia, Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me in ministry. Mark, of course, is the one who previously abandoned Paul. Paul here says he is useful in ministry, bring him to me. Now, we don't know if Timothy and Mark ever make it. Probably they didn't, because this is near the end for Paul. But he says, bring him with me, even though he abandoned me previously. And he gives us this list of those who abandoned him, those who... Betrayed him, those who he sent away. And he says, Tychicus, I have sent to Ephesus. And when you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas. And also the books and above all the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me. But all deserted me, may it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed, and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul gives us this list of people he had served with, and those he's sent on their way, and those who had betrayed him, and those who had opposed him, and those who had abandoned him, and he's asking, giving a second chance. He gives us this list, but he says, "In reality, in reality, the Lord was always with me." He stood with me, and he strengthened me. He rescued me, and he will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. have this incredible list of people who were followers of Christ in Paul's day and how they interacted with Paul. I want to flip back to 2 Samuel 23. Because in 2 Samuel chapter 23, as they're giving this list of the mighty men. People just like Eleazar and Shammah, As they're giving this list, he gives us a bunch of them. He says there are 37 of them total. And Right at the end of the chapter, as you're reading through these, a lot of these names we don't know, 37, verse 37. Zelech the Ammonite, Nahare the Bearioth, the armor-bearer of Joab, the son of Zariah. Ira the Ithrite, Gareb the Ithrite, and Uriah the Hittite. 37 in all. Uriah the Hittite. Now, why would they do that? Uriah the Hittite. David's greatest failure. His greatest betrayal, and if you don't know the story, you can read it. 2 Samuel chapter 11. Bathsheba's husband, Uriah the Hittite, who as you read the story, very obviously was a person who was loyal. Very obviously was a person who was devoted. Very obviously was a person who was willing to sacrifice. Just in the same way as the rest of the mighty men and yet, he was betrayed by David the king. You think this is accidental that the very last name on the list is Uriah? I don't. Because David was exactly right. He is not a king fit. For that kind of sacrifice. He's just not. And he never will be, and no one ever will be. I never will be. No leader you ever, no friend, no loved one will deserve that sort of devotion and honor and loyalty because everyone at some time in your life will betray you, they will break. Some promise, some word, something. Except for Jesus Christ. See, we read the list of Jesus' followers throughout the years. And there are some names on there like Damas. There are names on there like Mark. There are also names on there like Judas. Judas. But you know, on the Lord's list, there is not a single Uriah. He never betrays. He never breaks our trust. He always honors and shows loyalty. And more, he is not a king who asks us to sacrifice, but is a king who makes sacrifice for us. He does not ask us to pour out our blood. He poured out his blood for us. This, my friends, is the only king who is worthy of that gift. And that gift, that gift, our devotion, our honor, our loyalty standing before him and pouring our lives out before him is the only gift that is worthy of that king. When I read this story, I see a God who loves us so much that he sacrificed for us, that he sent his son for us. And let me tell you, friends, the promise of the Lord is sure to you today. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. And I don't know what you find yourself standing in the middle of, but he will be standing with you and strengthening you. In fact, it says that he will rescue you from every evil deed. And more than just that, he will bring you into his heavenly kingdom for all glory and honor and praise to his name. That's the king who is worthy this morning. And there is no other gift that we can bring besides our utmost devotion to him. To pour out our very lives before him as that gift our sacrifice to the God who sacrificed for us. There is no other king worthy of that gift, and there is no other gift worthy of that king.